Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. In our current series, our teacher, Lyric Fesco, is going through the Ten Commandments and what they mean to us today. We hope you enjoy the podcast. So uh, I spent the better part of my, as many as you know, I spent the better part of my childhood growing up in, in San Francisco. In the, uh, this would have been in the 1970s and the first half of the, of the 1980s. And as a child growing up in the 1970s in San Francisco, you can imagine what a scene that was. Uh, there was a certain look that was fairly ubiquitous around this time. People were getting their hair done in what was known as a feathered hairstyle. Okay, and uh, perhaps the epitome of the hairstyle rested upon the head of a model by the name of Farrah Fawcett. Do most people know the name Farrah Fawcett? Okay, there are precious few of you who raised your hands. I know some of you. Okay, and let me let me show you an example of this hairstyle. This is Farrah Fawcett. Those of you listening to the podcast can probably just Google really quickly feathered haircut 1970s, and you'll get a bunch of results showcasing this kind of hair. But this is what the uh, the haircut looked like on Farrah Fawcett. Now. A couple things to note about this particular hairstyle. If you're going to pull this look off, the most important feature to really get a good feathered look is you have to have the hair parted in the middle, okay? Parted in the middle. This way you get a nice symmetrical look uh, with 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 a feather sort of evenly distributed on either side. So first of all, part in the middle. Second, you have to have the the hair to be able to turn up like this in such a way to have that grouping of of feathers uh, look, okay? Now, I think Farah. Uh, maybe it was one of the pioneers of this hairstyle, but not to be outdone, uh, the guys wanted in on the action too. <laughs> so all the guys in the 70s and 80s started getting a male version of this haircut. Let me show you one in particular here. There you go. <laughs> this is John Travolta, believe it or not. <laughs> he had a perfectly executed feather cut. Notice once again the part right in the middle and uh, the feathered look on the sides. Well, even in grade school, Okay, this, this look was popular amongst all the guys and girls in elementary and in middle schools, in, in my middle school, and, and there was one guy in particular, he was able to pull this off, look off perfectly. He had it down. Uh, to protect the innocent, to protect the innocent, let's call him Wayne. We'll call him Wayne. If you look at, look at this picture of John Travolta, this is, is exactly what his hair looked like. It was, it was exactly this. And there's, 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 here's something else they did back then. They would, they would carry these big-handled combs in their back pocket so that you could whip these big-handled combs out and then just kind of do one of these numbers, you know? And then it would just be this feathered out just nice and, and perfectly. And, uh, and it would have that feathered look. Now, let me tell you something straight up. I was jealous of Wayne. I was jealous of him. He had, he had a perfect hair for this. And so I told my mom, Mom, I would like my hair to be done in this feathered look. I want, I want it to look just like Wayne's hair. Okay, now my mom tried to explain to me that I didn't have hair quite like Tra- Travolta's here or Wayne's. My hair was, was fairly wavy, and that could be a good thing for this type of look, but too wavy like mine, and, and your hair grows tall, not flowy, okay? <laughs> but nevertheless, I insisted, Mom, I want, I want the feathered haircut. Let me just do it. And so I, I forced the issue, but never was really able to pull it off. Now, I'm about to show you my picture from the sixth grade, <laughs> which represents my best attempt to replicate Wayne's hairstyle, all right? Uh, which again, his, his hair looked just like that. Okay, that's what I was going for. This goes against my better judgment, but here goes. Laughter's a little stronger than I anticipated. 
Now, you, you probably can't tell, but yes, my hair is parted in the middle. <laughs> there aren't any really feathers there. They're more resembling, uh, more than resembling feathers, it's, it's uh, shrubbery. And uh, so my hair doesn't, doesn't lay over my forehead like those other pictures that you saw. My, my forehead is fully exposed. In fact, some may call it a five head. Again, I was very jealous of Wayne, and, and let's put the two side by side here. This is what I was going for. <laughs> That's what I actually achieved, okay? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I didn't quite stick the landing. So, so this is why I was very jealous of Wayne, because at least in my own mind, he had, he had the perfect hair, and I was never really able to replicate it. And jealousy can make you do some, some crazy things. Now, on a side note, thanks to the advancements of modern technology and the magic of social media, I happen to know that as it currently stands, I have more hair than Wayne. <laughs> Take that for what it's worth. <laughs> Sharp turn here. We're engaged in a study on the Ten Commandments. And uh, last week I provided you an introduction and we talked about the prologue of the Ten Commandments. And this week we're, we're going a little bit more in depth on the first couple of commandments. And what you'll notice within the first couple of commandments is that there's this theme of jealousy. There's a theme of jealousy. God is a very jealous God, but his jealousy is quite a bit different than my jealousy of, of, of Wayne's hair. We'll, we'll talk about God's jealousy in a bit, but let me remind you of one thing that we covered last week that we want to keep in mind as we look at these, these 10 commandments. And so, so as, if, when you look at any command in the Bible, whether it falls within the book of Exodus or any other book of the Bible, when you look at the, the commandments of the Bible, you have to remember what we talked about last week. You remember what we said, the indicative and the imperative, the indicative and the imperative. God never gives us a command in the Bible. He never gives us a command of the Bible without reminding us first of who he is and what he's done for us. So that's, that's what he indicates, okay? That's the indicative and the, before he gets the imperative, the command. Before he goes into the commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And it's as if he's saying, remember, I, I, I am the God who fights for you. I'm the God who fights for you. I'm the God who supplies. I'm the God who provides for you. So before, before I give you all these commandments that I'm about to, to, to lay out for you, remember that. Remember under whose power you operate. And, and this is not a task for you to venture out on your own and accomplish. You operate under my power. Okay? I supply the power. Remember that. Indicative. That's what I'm indicating to you. Now, here are the commandments. And so, if you keep that in mind, remember that uh, when we, we, we look at these commandments, we're, 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 the commandments were never meant to be a means of earning God's favor. They were never intended to be that. The commandments were just a means of bringing out the favor that He has for you. That's what the commandments are about. Okay, keep that in mind as we look at each of these commandments. And, and as I mentioned for you in the, in the email yesterday, we're going to try and examine three things with every commandment that we look at. We want to try and see what it meant to the original audience, what it means to a modern audience, and then we're going to try and see how Christ fulfilled the commandments for us perfectly. How he fulfilled the commandments for us perfectly, okay? Now let's talk about the first two commandments, and we'll, we'll talk about them together because they're, they're very closely related. As a matter of fact, if you, if you really look at the first commandment, you shall have uh, no other gods before me. If you can keep just that one commandment, if you can just keep that just that one, you know what? You'll, you'll keep all the commandments, okay? If you just keep that one, so they're all very closely re related by that, uh, by that, uh, by that math. They're, 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 uh, the first two commandments, so they're not saying exactly the same thing. There is a difference, but once again, they both speak to the jealous nature of God. But let me ask you this, when God says that he's a jealous God, how is that a good thing? What do we mean by God being a jealous God? If I'm, if I'm jealous of Wayne's hair, that is, not that is not a good thing. But if God says he's a jealous God, why is that a good thing? What, what makes that a good thing? Who wants to try and get that one for me? 
Yes, Linda. He loves us with such a passion. Mm-hmm. He wants us to be with him. He loves us with such a passion. He wants us to be with him. Okay. What's, yeah, go ahead. He knows that if our ultimate heart and well-being are invested in anything but him, we're going to come up short. Okay. And so what happens when we are invested in him? Then we're functioning as he created. We're functioning as he created us. Okay. Uh, jealousy. Jealousy is an attribute of God. Okay. Is governed by his holiness. Jealousy as an attribute of God is governed by his holiness. Uh, usually when we think of jealousy, it's something with a sinful intention. It's, its root is in covetousness. I coveted Wayne's hair. God's jealousy is rooted in his holiness, his perfection. The only one that can be jealous from a holy sta- He's the only one that can be jealous from a holy standpoint because he's literally the only one who is beyond compare. Okay? There's no higher standard than he. There's no one worthy of praise, honor, and glory, and, and anything that receives honor, praise, and glory like this is misplaced. It only belongs in one place, and it only fits in one place. So whenever you try and apply that somewhere else, it's misplaced. And so that's why God says, no, don't, don't place it where it will be misplaced. Place it to the only place that it fits. And the only place that it fits is with me, okay? Is with me and my honor, my will, because I am perfect. I am, I am holy, okay? So this is the first commandment. This is Exodus 20, verse 3, and it says this, You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so first of all, you're going to have to tell me, let's see who wants to take a stab at this one. What, is, what, what, what do you suppose the meaning of this commandment has, what would it have to the Israelites when they first received this command? When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, does that mean there actually were other gods? Were there other, are there other gods? Yeah, I was going to say golden. Now, again, yeah, it's very similar. The first two commandments are very similar because, remember, that was an idol. So he says, first of all, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment is, don't form yourself a graven image, an idol. So, you know, we're, 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 we're sort of teetering on, on both sides. It's, they're very closely related, aren't they? They're very closely related, first of all. No, there, of course there are no other gods. There are no, there's only one true living God. But do you remember what I said last week? Uh, where the Israelites, they were, where were the Israelites coming out of? They were coming out of Egypt. Did the Egyptians worship other gods? Yes, a lot. Okay, they uh, they had uh, um, they had these. Uh, remember when when they came out of Egypt, uh, God sent these plagues upon them, and uh, these weren't just random plagues. All right, rather they were direct responses to these so-called gods that the Egyptian worshipped, uh, turning the Nile into the into a river of blood. Okay, that was a slap in the face of the Egyptian god of the Nile. God sent to the Egyptians a plague of frogs. The Egyptians worshipped a frog goddess of childbirth. So there's a strong argument to be made that each of the plagues were a direct shot at one of the so-called gods that the Egyptians worshipped, effectively embarrassing and defeating these gods, okay? So what God is saying to the Israelites here, he's saying the message he's trying to establish from right out of the gate. Um, someone tells me what a, what, a, what a wedding vow means to you. What does a wedding vow, what, is, what effectively are you communicating when you engage in a wedding vow? What? Commitment. Commitment. Okay. Any other? No other spouse before me. There is no, exactly it. No other spouse before me. That is exactly it. My favorite movie of all time, my favorite movie of all time, believe it or not, I'm sorry to say, is not a Marvel Comics movie. I'm sorry. You know, but you know, you know the quote of the class, right? Okay. But my favorite movie, my, my favorite movie of all time is Braveheart. I love this movie. I don't, on that note, I don't recommend it for kids. So if you have young kids, do not 
do not show this to young kids. I've not even shown it to my kids yet, but there's this wedding scene in the movie where William Wallace and his bride are exchanging vows, and they're very short, very simple, but they capture the heart of, of what a wedding vow should say. Uh, he says to her, and this, and, and this is only it, this is it, this is all he says. He says, uh, I will love you my whole life, you and no other. And she responds with, and I you, you and no other forever. That's it. Those are all the vows. Whatever you say in your marriage vow, whatever you say in them, if they don't somehow come back to this idea, it's not really a vow, okay? You're saying, I'm reserving this special, unique love for you and you alone, you and no other. I will love you and no other, okay? This is, this is what God is establishing for the Israelites right out of the gate. This is what he's saying. He's, he's making this commandment number one. What is the expectation of a bride of her groom and a groom of her bride? This is it. You're the one. I will love you my whole life and no other. Okay, you and no other. In no uncertain terms, God was making Israel out to be his bride. And this idea was established even before this, even before Exodus uh, itself, all the way back in Exodus 6, when he's promising Moses deliverance uh, of his people, where he says this, this is Exodus 6, 6 to 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Right here, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Okay? And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will be your God you will be my people. And this is a a refrain that's repeated all throughout the Old Testament, and he's establishing himself. He's establishing himself as the bridegroom of Israel and establishing Israel as his bride. And so he's reiterating this vow once again, you are my bride, love me your whole life, love me and no other, okay? Now, the Israelites were, were lousy at this, okay, at this part. You know, he was good at being their God, but in terms of, they were not good at observing their, their end of the vows, okay? They continually cheated as it were, on their husband. They were, they were constantly looking at the so-called gods of the neighboring countries, and they would engage in the worship of, of, of cheating of the worst kind, which is where they tried to set up a both-and scenario. Uh, let's worship the God of Israel and the God of our neighbor. Let's incorporate the God of our neighbor into our worship of, of the one true God. Okay, and, and in each instance, God would, would give in to the, just like Scott was saying this morning in the, in the, in the, in the sermon, that he would, this is how he often operates. We, we, we tug and we pull and we try and run away. And often what God says is, okay, have at it. Do your thing. I'll just, I'm just taking my hands off. Go ahead. See how it is chasing after these other gods. The Bible uses this, uh, forgive my language, but this is the, the Bible uh, language here. He says uh, he would let them whore around with other gods and let them arrive at the point where they made themselves miserable because they removed themselves from underneath the protection of the one true God. And they'd come back crawling, God, please forgive us. Please forgive us. And he would always be good and, and then restore them uh, back to their, their place. But then they'd, they'd go and wander off all over again. So that's, that's the context of the original commandment. It's like a marriage vow. First, I will be your God and and you will have no other. Okay? Don't go running after other gods and for heaven's sake, don't try and incorporate the worship of other gods into into your worship of of me. So if, if that's the line that he's giving Israel, let's ask ourselves today what that looks like in a modern context. Okay? What does this look like for us today? You tell me. Obviously, I think it's safe to say that none of us are worshiping frog gods or, or sun gods. Maybe some of you are. If you are, we can talk about that later. But, but what gods are we guilty of putting before God today? What gods, where are we unfaithful as the bride of Christ? What does that look like in a modern context if we're not worshiping sun gods or frog gods or whatever the case may be? Money or work. Money or work. Okay. Anyone else? 
Special status. Special status, uh-huh. If you have like, um, you have like ultimate manifestation of this, mm -hmm. or you have ultimate reality of it and then the manifestation of it, the manifestation to them looks like actual idols and stuff that you carve, but it's always the same thing. It's always worship of self. Mm -hmm. instead of worship of God. Like, what do I need? Mm -hmm. That's where you like the jealousy and the wrath. But we have jealousy and wrath is to take from another to give it to ourselves. Right. Ultimately. God needs nothing. When he expresses jealousy and wrath, it's actually for the other. Like, right. He's not trying to add to himself. It's right, he can't add to himself. Right. He, mm -hmm. And so when we shift our view to him to worship ourselves, essentially, be it through, you know, it's, all, it's usually power and pleasure, some mm -hmm. form of power or pleasure, they just used to put a, a wooden image on their dashboard mm -hmm. to add to that. We're doing the same thing, we just right. don't put the images up anymore. Someone else? Yes. Huh? I was going to say, when we taught Sunday school, anything that takes you away from your time with the Lord, and I was convicted this morning, do I tithe my time? Mm -hmm. Do I spend my first fruits with the Lord? Mm -hmm. And what do I grab first? My phone. What's the weather? Oh, I'm shopping for a car. Mm -hmm. Ooh, what am I? I mean, that phone. I think most of us would have to admit that that takes pressure. Yeah, it's 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 scary. And to think that just last week I told you that my son for his 13th birthday <laughs> I got a phone. <laughs> Here's a little idle son. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I th and again, and we, ha we have to try and make a distinction here because I really tried to put a lot of thought into this in terms of what is the difference between the first and the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me and the second, don't make for yourself an idol. Okay, because a lot of times we, 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 we mix the two together and I think, I think it's okay because again, if you, if you just focus on that first commandment, you're going to observe all the rest. So it's almost like they're unfolding from the very, very top one. But I think the most obvious one, at least to me it is, we don't serve sun gods or frog gods, but, but what is the God of today in our modern society? Society. You know, we are what is called a, a pluralistic society and a society that says, hey, we can all be right. We can all be right. Whatever God you want to worship is okay. We, we dress it up as inclusivity. Okay. And inclusivity is in and of itself is a good thing. That's a good thing, but it has to have limits insofar as, as worship goes and insofar as, as we interpret the Bible. Okay. It's a good thing to be respectful of other cultures and belief. We talked last week how Jesus uh, told us to love our neighbor and we're told to love our neighbor is to the exclusion of no one. Okay. We, we love our neighbor, period. But the worship of God is a worship of God. Okay, the Word of God is the Word of God. It does not change. And I think the biggest temptation of being inclusive sometimes comes at the expense of what we believe to be true in the Bible and what we believe to be true of the, of the, of the, the God we worship. We make a bigger God out of inclusivity or culture at the expense of what we believe to be true in the Bible. By way of a quick example, some years ago, we ta we've talked about this a couple times, is that there was a prominent preacher who began to publicly claim that it was his belief that in the end, everybody would just go to heaven. Everyone would go to heaven regardless of what, where you put your faith. Now, if you were to ask him, I'm sure he would have said that he had a biblical reasoning for that, but I suspect it wasn't biblical reason. I suspect his, this was an attempt to make the faith more palatable, okay? A bit more inclusive. He was bound to the God of pluralism here, and he was bound to the God of inclusivity. And, and here's the irony of it all. This is the irony of it all. Our faith our faith is the most palatable. Our faith, in, from this regard, our faith is the most inclusive. Only our faith says, I don't care who you are, come as you are. No, no, our faith does not remove judgment like this particular preacher tried to do, but only our faith says God's judgment is placed on his son so that you can be declared righteous and enjoy fellowship with God. That's, that's, that's free grace right there. And I dare say there isn't another religion out there that offers this. 
This is, this, is, this is the best one. Why would you want to change that, okay? That's just one example of us worshiping another god, bowing down to the, the, the god of the culture, of the god of society, the gods of, of culture, whatever they may be, okay? Any comments on that so far? Any other thoughts? Yes, Jen. Um, one of the things that we use in biblical counseling is only two options on the shelf, worship God or worship self. Worship God or worship. When it comes down to it, that's all it is. It's exactly it. And I think even with the exclusivity, what we are worshiping is, I don't want to be in conflict mm -hmm. with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Peace at any price. Well, that's right. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And we'll bow down to that. Now, this is, the, this is the command. Let's look at it once again. Rather than look at it solely as a rule, here's what you have to do. This is your job, and if you fail at it, you failed God. Rather than look at it like that, like I just mentioned to you in an email, uh, as much as the law represents boundaries and restrictions, it also represents freedom. Okay, you you and I aren't able to commit commit this this command or uh, keep this commandment very well. We 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 fail all the time at it, all the time. We continually put our loyalty of other things above God, and, and that that stinks. Okay, but again, God is the God who fights for us, and Jesus came and observed each of these ten commandments perfectly on our behalf. He did it perfectly and gave us credit for it. So, so let's ask ourselves, how did Christ fulfill this commandment perfectly? Okay, how did, he, how did Christ fulfill this commandment perfectly? And this may be an obvious answer. Did he have any other gods before him? He didn't. He didn't. He never worshiped another god. Of course, he never had loyalty that was greater than the loyalty he had for his father. He did that perfectly. Okay, remember this, this is Matthew 4, 9 to 10. What did, what did Jesus tell Satan after he was offered all things of the world, if he would just bow down to Satan, what did he say? He said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he did that. He did that and then he applied it to you. He says, you get the credit for that. I did it perfectly you get the credit for that. He was tempted and tried on all points, and in spite of the temptation, we're told in Philippians 2.8 that he was obedient even unto death on a Christ. Christ perfectly fulfilled the first commandment. Yeah, Luke. Uh, and I think in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, too, where mm -hmm. he has full Christ recognition of the wrath that's about to be poured out on him and the misery of that, and would desire... If there were another way, like mm -hmm. an expression of how horrible it was. My God, but let this cup pass from me. Just mm -hmm. personal desire, nothing but your will. Mm -hmm. but, but not even, not my will, you know, nothing but your will be done when he's facing it. Think of all the other things that were coming at him at that point. The, the prospect of, of, of suffering through pain, through separation, through everything, through, through uh, shame, through uh, humiliation. And he didn't bow to any of those things. In the end of the day, he, he stayed true to his, his mission to uh, serve the Father and Father and do the will of the Father. That's what he did. He didn't bow down to any other God, any other pressures. Yeah, Rosemary. It's called, I don't know if anyone would have said that um, even though he was in very likeness God, he did not seek equality with God but emptied himself. So it wasn't just that he didn't assume. No, 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 yeah, that's Philippians 2, from Philippians 2. We just, we just read a portion of that, but yes, you're exactly right, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's it, my favorite. I think that's my favorite verse. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just that he, that there wasn't a God, it was also what he actively did, that he actively mm -hmm. tried to self 
That's right. Yeah, we always remember that. We, we mentioned that a little bit last week too, that Christ didn't come to just die for your sins, but he also came to live for your righteousness. And that this is, this is what he actively sought to please the Father. He actively obeyed God. Not just didn't sin, but he actively was righteous on his behalf serving God. Yes. I'm just thinking, sometimes some of us as parents will say, oh, you know, I'll endure that for my kid, or if I could only take that illness and, you know, and not be bestowed on my child. But I was just thinking, Christ watched his mom suffer, Mm -hmm. excruciating, and he knew the pain. And she... I mean, in that one movie, they talk about how she kind of knew the plan, but the idea that he watched her lose her baby, Mm -hmm. and so he felt that pain, Mm -hmm. and yet, and most of us would be like, oh, I couldn't do that to to my mom. I don't Mm -hmm. mind suffering, but the idea of allowing our children to go through pain so that they can endure, Mm -hmm. how there's that rescue syndrome at all. That's a little bit what we talk about when we talk about Lazarus, too, knowing... Okay, knowing what, what the outcome was about to be, knowing that Mary and Martha were, were suffering. They were suffering. You know, they were crying. And he could have stopped at any point and said, you know what, let's just heal Lazarus and, and they'll be okay. They'll stop crying. But instead, he, he let the process unfold. He let death occur. For what purpose? So the Son would be glorified. Let me, let me get to the second commandment real quick and see if we got about uh, seven, eight minutes left here. Let's see if we can't get through this. This is from Exodus 20, verse 4 to 6. Uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above uh, that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For the Lord, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who, who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's in this commandment where the Lord goes on to say that he is a jealous God. And it's in this, this commandment that we're moved uh, from gods to idols. And so this is why I was saying, what, what's the difference between a, a God and an idol here? The, fir- the first commandment I'd say, if, I, if I'm having to pick this apart, thank you, choir, we'll see you in a little bit. Uh, the first commandment, I'd have to say this has to do, the first commandment has to do with worship. And, uh, and not compromising the worship of the one true God and, and, and His Word. The second commandment, and if I had to pin it down to one word, if I had to pin it down to one word, has to do with trust. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism defines idolatry. It says this. Idolatry is, uh, instead of the one true God who has revealed Himself in His Word, or along with the same, to conceive, of, or, to conceive or have something else on which to place our trust. Okay? I, I may not worship money, um, we'll say, but, but uh, I can be guilty of placing my trust in it, okay? In other words, more simply stated, idolatry. Idolatry is anything in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. I should trust God to provide for me, but I, but I can be guilty of placing my trust in a job to provide for me. Listen, it's easy to lose your job and, and, and be devastated by that. I went through a period in my 20s where uh, I was having difficulty finding a job, and it was probably the most miserable point of my life, my low point of my life I've ever been. Why? Because at the time I was thinking, and, and it's easy to fall into this trap, without a job, I, I don't have an identity. You know, when we always, when we, when we meet one another, we, you know, we always say, hey, what do you do for a living? And if you don't have a job, it feels like, you know what? I don't have an identity now. I don't, I don't, I don't have an identity. That's what I believe. So without a job, I didn't have an income. At the time, I was, I was even engaged to Tracy, and I didn't have a job. How was I able to call myself a provider, you know, and, and, and I didn't have an income? I, I was looking to my job uh, for an identity. But where does my identity truly come from? What's my identity? What is my identity? I'm a ch- of the living God. That's my identity. 
I was replacing my trust in God with my trust in whatever I thought a job could, could provide for me. All right? Let's look at a little, really quick in original context. Do you remember when Moses was descending upon, uh, from Mount Sinai and after he receives the, the from God, you know the story, don't you? He, he comes down to the mountain and he sees the Israelites have grown impatient and waiting for Moses to come down. So what do they do? They constructed for themselves this, this giant idol, okay, a golden calf of worship. Now, you have to realize how this all unfolded. Uh, what do you think was going through their heads when they decided to formulate this plan to make a golden calf? Do you think they were just standing around saying, hey, what do you want to do today? I know. Let's melt down all the gold. Let's make a giant cow and, and, and worship and bow down to it. You know, uh, I don't think it unfolded quite like that. Look at this. This is the opening verses to Exodus 32, verse 1. It says this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, uh, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Okay, what's going on there? You may find this hard to believe, but it may have been that the Israelites began with good intentions. Okay, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, you know what? I miss Moses. He, what's taking him so long? You, you see, Moses was their intermediary between God and the people. He was their worship leader. He was their facilitator of worship. And gosh, he's, he's taking a long time. Okay? And so with that, Aaron made an image to visualize the one true God as the people were tired of waiting for Moses to come down from Sinai, so they thought they could summon God by creating an image of him. Okay? They were trying to worship the one true God, but on their terms. They, they thought they could control God, move him around and worship him as they pleased, okay? You see that they conceived of or had something else on which they placed their, their trust. God is not responding on my terms, so I'm going to place something else in there to, to, in its place. God is not responding the way I think he should respond, so alcohol will fix it. So money will fix it. Uh, a different spouse will fix it. A new house will fix it. And, and you see, many of these things in and of themselves are good things. They're not bad things. That's not what we're saying. But when they become the ultimate thing, then it becomes a bad thing. When, you, when, when, when it becomes the thing that you absolutely have to have, your happiness, your peace, your well-being depend on it, then it becomes an idol. Okay? I, I can't be happy or be at peace without fill in the blank. If your happiness or peace depends upon it, you may have built for yourself an idol. When good things become the ultimate things, that's when idolatry comes into play. Okay? So, again, real quick, this is the commandment. You shall love the Lord your God, or excuse me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. And how did Christ fulfill this commandment? Well, of course he never made a graven image, right? That's, that's not what we're... <laughs> Or even I can consider that, but it even goes beyond that. Listen to this. He, he was the perfect representation of God. Okay? He was the perfect image of God. In John 14, 8 to 9, we read this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, we, we can't manufacture images of God because Jesus Christ has already taken that role. Only Christ can do what no man-made image can, namely perfectly fill that space which can only be filled and was only designed to be filled by God. I'll close with this. It was just a couple of weeks ago where my two boys and I took our bikes out for a ride. And uh, 
um, and where, the, where we live, there's a park not too far from us. And so we get to the park mostly by way of a downhill ride. It's downhill all the way to get to the park. And it was fairly easy to get there, just downhill shot. And so when we got there, I told my youngest son, Logan, well, that was an easy ride, all downhill. And he said back to me, yeah, I wish everything was downhill all the time. <laughs> so I told him, well, if you just went downhill, you could never go back to the place you were. You could, you could never go home. And then he told me, well, you just set up a new home where you were. <laughs> now, at this point, I thought I could argue with him, right? I could say, I could point out how impractical that is and how you could, you know, how, how would you get your stuff from the old house to the new house? You'd have to have a mover who was already uphill from your house to get your stuff to bring it downhill. And then what about when it came time to close on your house? You'd have to drive to the, the <laughs> office. But then once you got there and closed on your house, you couldn't go back uphill to your house because it was uphill. And so it's rather than argue, I just said... Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's right. But then on his own, he said this. You know, but if everything was only downhill, then there wouldn't be any challenges and nothing would be gained. Okay? And before I could tell him how profound that was, he told me, hey, I just came up with something really wise. <laughs> he was so impressed with himself. <laughs> And it is pretty wise, but let me, let, me, let me leave you with another really wise saying. This is from St. Augustine, and I'm sure you've heard different iterations of this quote, but the quote goes like this. You have made us for yourself. I think I have it up here. Do I have it? Yes. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. In other words, this is what we humans have a tendency to do, Okay. We try and fill our hearts with things into a place that can only be perfectly occupied by God himself. And we'll fight and we'll fight and we'll fight. And we'll try and cram things into that space that don't quite fit in there. And we'll keep up that fight until he brings us to a place where we can rest in him and cast our idols aside and find rest in Christ and in him alone. And then our hearts are at rest because only he can occupy that space perfectly. Any other thoughts or comments on that before we're dismissed? We have a couple of minutes that we can take questions. Yes, Esther. I'm no theologian, and I certainly don't know Greek or whatever language this was written in, but I kind of had a question about just the framework of the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that shall not, that shall not, that shall not, like don't remember, don't do these things. But there are three where it says, Active. Shall. Mm -hmm. So I take those as invitations for mm -hmm. a better life, I guess. So you shall have no other God. I, if you look at the, the, the whole thing is an invitation for a better life, because ultimately if you follow those Ten Commandments, you are the primary beneficiary of that. Your life will be much better now, but it does go back to the thought of, again, Christ not only did not sin, but he actively obeyed. So there's elements of the law that say there are things you shouldn't do, and that's one side of it, but then there are things that you should actively do for, for righteousness' sake, and Christ did them both. He was actively, not only did he not sin, but he was also actively righteous, and that is what was required to be in fellowship with God. It's not enough to be sinless, but you have to be righteous and sinless, and God did, or Jesus did those perfectly to be in fellowship with him. I think that's what that points to, uh, as much as it does an invitation for righteousness, too. Yeah. And I was thinking more along the lines of what St. Augustine was saying, these things where, when he says, if you honor your mother and your father, you'll be blessed. Mm -hmm. And take the Sabbath day because you need the rest. You'll be blessed, you yeah. You'll have no other gods before me. Because you'll be blessed, yep, absolutely. Someone else? Any other thoughts? All right. Okay, good. Well, we just got through two commandments. We've got eight to go. We'll try and, we'll try and do a couple, three a, a week. And, uh, and it should get really interesting as we get further into it. Because again, some of these ones we really struggle with today, whether it is 
keeping the Sabbath? Or what does it mean not to lie? Never lie? Never lie? What if, what if, this is the one I love, what if a gunman comes into your house and said, is there anyone upstairs? Am I not supposed to lie to him? I don't know. We'll see. There's a cliffhanger for you. Who'd like to close us in prayer? Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week.